Hey, everybody. Welcome to Resource Families Thrive, the podcast by Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. Uh, this is Daniel. I am your host, and I am officially changed to the Training and Community Outreach Coordinator. Um, our goal with the podcast is to just help get information out there, do that community outreach piece, teach you about what foster care can look like and the different issues that are impacting it. Um, one of those issues is um, focused in around diversity, equity, and inclusion. So that's what we'll be talking about today. Uh, more on that in just a moment when I have my guest introduce herself. A um, little bit about who we are as an organization. Uh, you know, if you're if you're new here, I want you to know a little bit of background. Stanford Sierra Youth and Families is a merged organization. We are going on four years. Um, we used to be two separate at Stanford Youth Solutions and Sierra Forever Families. Um, between the two agencies, we had about 150 plus years of combined experience. It just made sense for us to get married. We provide a really wide range of services. I don't list them all off because we keep on adding more. We keep on diversifying, which is fantastic. And we also keep on growing in our reach within the broader communities. Um, but what we do want you to know is that uh, any of the services that we do offer to youth and families within our region are dedicated to supporting our mission. Let's see if I get this right, because we just made an adjustment to our mission statement. Um, so if you are returning, you might hear a slight wording difference. We'll see if you pick up on it. But our mission is transforming lives by nurturing permanent connections and empowering families to solve challenges together so every young person can thrive. One ask that I always have, because this is an interest of educating the public, of dispelling some of the myths and rumors about foster care and the kids in foster care, who they are, and then what the needs are within the community um, please don't forget to like, comment, and share any social media posts where you see the podcast shared. We do want to make sure that people are getting this info, that they are learning more, that they are able to spread it around into the community, um, because that's that's one of the big ways that we change things, right? We we change things, we, we um, make those shifts within our cultures by educating, by telling people what's going on. As I mentioned, today's focus is actually going to be on a pretty broad topic, um, and that is around diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are joined by our Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and I will let her introduce herself and talk more about what that even means. Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. Um, yes, I'm Erin Reynolds. I'm the Associate Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at Stanford Sierra Youth and Families. I have been here not quite a year yet, but it feels like I've been here much longer. Um, I love the agency and the work that everyone's doing and the passion um, for the programs and the work is just like really beautiful to see and be a part of and support. Um, if I had to share a little bit about me, my background is actually in public health, so I am new to all of the systems that we're working here within this agency, but I think from what we know about disparity and disproportionality exists in all the systems, so the issues that I was tackling while working in public health are very similar to the ones that the families and youth that we're working with are experiencing, so um, I feel like I know uh, just that lens very intimately. Um, I spent several years at a public health nonprofit uh, doing a bunch of different work for a bunch of different projects, but 
Um, mainly a large part of my role was leading health equity initiatives um, and working with um, local governments around um, implementing health equity policies to improve the lives of marginalized communities. Um, and that was my segue into diversity, equity, and inclusion work. It gave me um, an opportunity to see in a real intimate way the disparities and uh, the challenges that our institutions were facing um, and how they were not considering or um, implementing uh, the concerns of residents and the people who were being most impacted by decision-making. Um, so I got to work both with uh, those who were in positions of power, as well as just some really amazing community members um, to do some work to affect change um, within their communities. And um, it was just so amazing. I loved it. I learned so much from all of the people around me, um, especially the residents who I was working with. So um, I really feel like that lens like equipped me to continue um, in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Um, so yeah. From your opinion, why is it so important that we talk about this, that we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion? You know, one one question that people have all the time is, you know, we we are a agency that is supposed to serve everybody, certainly. Um, so why do we place this particular emphasis on this core concept around diversity, equity, and inclusion? Why does it need to be said? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And it needs to be said because it's work that we're not doing. And if it was something that we were doing and was already um, authentically embedded into our systems, then it was it's not something that we would need to talk about. Um, the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really around creating spaces that accept and uh, allow us to show up in all of these spaces as our most authentic selves. What we all know is that when we go specifically in a professional spaces, there is a culture built around how we are supposed to show up in those spaces. And a lot of times that culture means um, hiding a lot of parts of our identities, right? Because there's a singular way that we're supposed to show up in the workplace. That means there's a way that we have to talk. There's a way that we have to appear. There's a way that we have to hold ourselves that aligns with like this dominant culture, a dominant narrative. And the work of DEI is about shifting um, the paradigm and shifting our own view of what it looks like to show up authentically in our work. I think what is really um, important about this and kind of central to it is how do we create cultures within agencies that value and um, accept and uh, make all of the people who are a part of our workforce um, feel that they are in a place that uh, that they can thrive and that they will have all of the things they need and that they can show up as their authentic selves and uh, they will be a part of the decision making and they will be just a thought when decisions are being made. Um, and how do we create, the, how do we embed this lens and this framework or this kind of like way of operating into our agency and into our culture so that when we send our staff and our workforce out into the community to provide services, they are always operating from a lens of who is not at the table, who should be at the table, um, how could this decision or this process uh, negatively impact you? Who is going to be most impacted? And how can we account for that early on as we are, you know, providing services and making decisions so that we can mitigate as much 
um, harm as possible. So you just mentioned, um, you talked about the most impacted with the youth and families that we serve. Who are the most impacted populations, if you know off the top of your head? Yeah, I would say from a lot of the work that I do, the disparities are exist across systems and it's usually the same groups. Um, and I think specifically when we're looking at like child welfare, we see a lot of dispar disparities with our, our Black and African-American youth, um, as well as our LGBTQ plus youth. But uh, I think all of the marginalized groups are going to experience or do experience some form of uh, disproportionality or another um, because our systems were not created to serve um those communities and they were not created uh, and accounted for the, the ways that they show up and the cultural differences. Um, and until we do the really un intentional unlearning and kind of dis dismantling and rebuilding of systems that is necessary, we're gonna continue to see those, uh, those shifts. It's one thing I'm really grateful to, to Stanford Sierra for is that in my 10 years here, I have unlearned and relearned and continue to learn a lot. I was a very different person when I walked in the door um, with my understanding of how dynamics were of things like race, ethnicity um, within the systems of care that we that we operate in. And it is something that is very important to me that we teach. Uh, we we teach our resource families on a lot of this stuff. You know, some of the the disparities that you just mentioned. Um, one of the startling statistics uh, that I found in 2020 was that 51% of Black African American families, and I believe this is a national statistic, um, but 51% had been investigated by CPS, um, which means that over half of Black and African American families at some point had someone looking at them, figuring out if they were good parents if they could, if they were appropriate for their children. And that's a startling number. Um, and then we also know, you know, another great example, why we have ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare, uh, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, not a great example, a powerful example. Let me rephrase that. But we have that act because Native American youth were disproportionately being removed from their Native American families and then placed with families who were not native, who were outside of their communities at a really startling rate. I wanna say it was like 65 or 75%. I don't have the stats right in front of me, um, but it was high. And so, yeah, we do need to talk about those things. We need, we need people to know those things. Um, Absolutely. I think it's unfortunate. I mean, looking at right now that the constitutionality of ICWA is being debated right now mm -hmm. in court, um, just, I think is really telling of the work that needs to be done um, so that we can continue to build awareness and do that very um, conscious learning and unlearning that we both have had to do along this journey to make sure that we are creating, you know, more equitable systems. I know one way some systems, at least within the state of California, have tried to adjust around the child welfare side of things, because, you know, it's my field of expertise is, is child welfare. Um, they have started doing what are called blind removals, which means that when they're reviewing a removal of a child from their family, uh, they send it to a review board. And of course, this happens very quickly. It sounds very slow, but it has to happen kind of fast. Um, 
but they strip any possible identifying information from their reporting. So there's nothing on there about race, ethnicity. They remove the names just in case those could potentially be telling, um, like any possible identifying information. And what they found is that when you do blind removals of a child and bring them into foster care, the number of children of color the, the disproportionality that's there adjusts itself. It starts to correct and go more into balance as to what the county population looks like. Um, so if that's not telling, I don't know what is. Yeah, I'm not surprised at all. I think that speaks a lot to the implicit bias um, that uh, many of us have and that is embedded in a lot of our systems where um, sometimes these things are happening and we are reinforcing oppressive systems or processes and practices and, and we don't know it, right? Because it's just kind of ingrained in how the systems function. I think something that was really interesting to me coming into this work and learning about the other side of child welfare is that I remember being in the community and working with just like these powerful, really amazing people who were living in areas that had been historically redlined and communities that had been dis or underinvested in um, and had all of these other burdens of systemic inequity. And they were also at the same time fighting in child welfare um, to, you know, maintain um custody of their own children or, or trying to get, you know, family members in the the burden and the challenges that they were having to face um, navigating those systems was just like, so I don't know, it was like hard to grapple with at times because you see people as this, like this pillar in your community and um, that you know them for all of these amazing things that they're doing and, you know, trying to then like get custody of maybe like a grandchild. Um, or a friend or, uh, you know, a, somebody who was a part of their community. Um, it seemed like there were always like constant barriers that they were having to face that uh, we know other families who lived in other zip codes who had uh, different resources and a different skin color were not having to deal with. And you talked about implicit bias just a moment, moment ago. We could do an entire episode on implicit bias and probably should if I haven't before, but uh, another one is the internalized bias. So as you're talking about like redlining and we look at like neighborhoods and geography, um, I think one thing I've seen as I do uh, foster care recruitment, resource family recruitment is that, you know, what we hope is that our families will come from the same communities that our kids come from, that our kids in foster care are coming from. Uh, maintaining that connection is really important to them um, and to us as well. And uh, the struggle is that finding people who think that they can within those communities, you know, they, they live in those areas that, um, were traditionally redlined. If people don't know what that practice is, it's really about, um, to summarize it quickly, it's a historic practice that basically said, if you live in certain zones and this happened in California or in uh, Sacramento area as well, um, then you would get worse rates on things like home loans. Um, you would get subprime loans um, and uh, in order to, to purchase property when you tried to do that, banks would be allowed to do that based on the area in which you lived. And generally that was based on race ethnicity. Unfortunately, what this meant is that some people were kind of frozen out or squeezed out of being able to own homes because of... Um, oppressively high interest rates, things like that. 
And that is why home ownership in certain areas is significantly lacking and has been for decades. And so within those regions, those areas that still exist because of that lack of generational wealth, which is formed typically through pro uh, property ownership, um, we don't have a lot of families coming from the areas where the kids are, which means our kids have to get moved around much further, be placed in unfamiliar areas, which is just more, more trauma on top of what they're already experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like there's also that fear that exists um, from people who are coming in with those communities who are dealing with the burdens of community trauma um, and, uh, you know, just the idea of having to go through all of the processes that the systems require to get into that space. It almost seems unattainable. We see that a lot with the LGBT community as well, in particular, uh, because uh, LGBT people traditionally have not been allowed to necessarily adopt children or have actually been told by system people, um, system representatives that, you know, it would be really hard to get a placement for them when it comes to foster care, um, that they get really disheartened and they wind up not. And then also that, that systemic trauma that exists for the LGBT community, um, you know, we know that when people are traumatized, they might wind up self-medicating. They might wind up doing survival crimes like theft, things like that. And so they think they're not good enough. They think that that little, that, that, that history, that criminal record, whatever it is, is going to completely exclude them from the possibility. Um, I remember one time I was at Sacramento Pride recruiting, like actively recruiting foster resource families i can't remember what year so it was either foster or resource um and i asked someone walking past hey have you ever thought about being a, a foster parent um and the response was i didn't think we were allowed to be and that was startling to me because here's a social service agency actively at pride we took the time and the energy to go to pride to recruit and people were startled to learn that, yeah, you are allowed to. Your sexual orientation, your gender identity do not pose a problem, do not create a barrier, at least not for our organization, I'm pretty proud to say. Yeah, I think that's what we see when um, people in different groups and identities have been pushed to the margins. They don't see themselves um, being able to, I think, participate in uh, systems and things like the way that we would hope, right? Because these are the same youth who are facing the most disparities and, and being able to have a cultural match, whether that is with uh, your gender identity, sexual orientation, um, or your race and ethnicity is, is really, can be transformative mm -hmm. um, and can really be, a, can help support um, and promote better outcomes. Mm -hmm but we need to have systems where everyone feels like they're belong where they belong and that they can um, engage and participate in the same way. Yeah. A huge part of that in the foster care realm. Um, and I actually have some insights outside of the foster care realm on this particular point as well. Um, but within that realm in particular, um, a big struggle that I see at times is we do have a lot of families coming in and 
Um, we have a high need for families that are open to interracial, interethnic placements. But one of the reasons people don't want to do that, they're reluctant to do that, is because they don't want to get it wrong. Um, and that is with the best of intentions, they don't want to accidentally dishonor a child. They don't want to accidentally, um, from their perspectives, cause further harm. But it also comes back to that whole concept, that whole question of if not you, then who? And so what I talk to families about is if you are capable of learning, if you are capable of taking in new information, then you are capable of going beyond yourself, your identity, your culture, your race, ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation. Because um, if not you, then who? Everyone always says, well, someone else will do it. Someone else will take care of that. Um, and even on the mental health side of things or the other, the other populations that we serve, the other services that we provide, there is that stigma. They don't want to seek out services. They don't want to seek out those supports because they're worried that doing so, that coming to an organization like ours, and I've seen this firsthand, I've had people say it to me, um, that they're worried if they come to an agency like ours, that they can get reported to CPS and their children can get removed because they're seeking help, because they're trying to make sure that their children have stability. Um, they're worried that their kids are going to get taken away. Yeah, I feel like that's such a scary part of our reality, right? But we also see that in communities, especially um, communities who have uh, tension with law enforcement, like the Black community, it's similar, mm -hmm. where we're scared um, in those communities to call law enforcement when things happen because of fear that we may be putting someone or ourselves at risk, right? It's just a really scary reality. And I'm just, you know, I think that I'm... I don't know what it's going to take uh, because this, I think, exists across systems, right? But it's just, it's unfortunate, right, that that is the way that things are and that's the society we live in. What are some of the ways that we as an organization are really kind of working to show people that they can trust us as a partner in their well-being? What are, what are some of the concrete steps that we've been taking? Yeah, absolutely. We... Um, I would say just like bringing on somebody to lead the diversity, equity and inclusion work. Right. Because that's the that would be the cool thing to say and, to, you know, shout myself out. But um, uh, <laughs> you can shout yourself out. That's actually okay. right. <laughs> Celebrate yourself. Celebrate myself. Right. But um, it's so much more than that. Right. Because I think we saw after the murder of George Floyd that a lot of, of large corporations and organizations were bringing in somebody a lot of times a woman of color. Right. To lead diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, initiatives as a really performative way of showing that they were committed to doing the work and to uh, showing outwardly that this is something that they were committed to. I think what I really love and appreciate about Stanford's here is that we are committed to doing the work internally. So everything that we are stating and showing is also reflected in the culture of the agency that we're building here. Um, and it's uh, kind of like the bigger things are the lower hanging fruit and the other really intentional ways that we um, are embedding this lens into how we function as an agency. Um, I think some of those things we do just to promote this culture of around diversity or like, you know, creating spaces within our agency for people to show up as their authentic selves, like um, affinity groups, or I know some people call them employee resource groups and having that space for our staff to come our cultural observances and celebrations, just making sure that we're doing the small things to make sure that our staff and their all identities um, are, 
you know, feel seen. Uh, we also are making sure that we're providing training and that those are regularly updated so that we are equipping our workforce and specifically those providing services to youth and families to go out and serve them through that lens of cultural humility and, and understanding um, how implicit bias shows up and blinders that we may have and, and how to make sure we are moving with a lot of intention. Um, but then also it's building a culture that is is responsive to the growing needs of our um, workforce and the communities that we're serving. I think the most important part of a really effective diversity, equity, and inclusion strategy is being able to be responsive to the needs of your agency and uh, and having strong partnerships. And for us, that looks like having systems in place for to understand the pulse of our agency and what's going on in our community and a process to quickly pivot our processes or our practices or you know shift how we are operating to make sure that we are best meeting the needs of our staff um, as well as having strong partnerships with all of the departments and programs within our agencies both to offer support but then also to make sure that we are in a really intentional way, building that lens of equity into not only how we're delivering services, but how we're operating as an agency. Um, and just really understanding that for our diversity, equity, inclusion work to be authentic, um, it needs to, our goal should be creating a culture where we don't really have to talk about DEI, right? Because this is the work that we do. This is how we live our lives. This is the values that we have as an agency. So this is how we operate. And we are equipping our workforce to go out into the community and also operate from this same lens. Um, and then of course, like a commitment from leadership. I think that is what moves all of this work forward is that we have an executive leadership team um, as well as a board who is committed to doing the work um, to prioritize uh, our diversity, equity, and inclusion work, um, champion our initiatives, and uh, you know engage in it in a really authentic way where they're not only uh, kind of like bringing forth like opportunities for us to grow in this space, but also listening to things as they were coming up um, from throughout the agency and in, in co-creating solutions to, to move the needle. Maybe I'm saying this wrong, but it almost feels like we talk about it so that eventually we don't have to talk about it anymore. I think that you got it spot on. I think that's the goal, right? When we we have we have reached as close as we can to the top of the mountaintop when diversity, equity, inclusion is no longer a thing, right? Because it's just what we do. Yeah. Um, we see that with the within the LGBT community as well. You know, I have people ask, why do I why am I so political? Um, why am I so focused on on LGBT issues? And it's like because I have to be. Because if if I stop being political for just a moment, someone votes away rights of the LGBTQ community. Um, people start to create legislation that's downright discriminatory, that impacts us as individuals, but especially our kids. It's it's a big thing that our kids see. And even in California, even in um, areas that seem pretty affirming, they see things that are happening across the country and they think that could happen here too. Remember everybody, a really typical part of child development is a very self-centered nature. That is like every child. I've been there. I'm pretty sure everyone has been. 
Um, if you were a child, at some point you were self-centered. That's just a fact. Um, but part of that also is internalizing the things that you see happening in the world. And um, so that's one of the reasons. And one of the ways that we are also committed is I have the privilege myself of um, being the chairperson of our LGBTQ ad hoc work group. And it's an ad hoc because if someone sees a problem, um, they're able to contact us and say, hey, we should talk about this. We should meet about this and we should figure out how we can pivot. So to build on what you said, Aaron, about the ability to quickly adapt our processes, we don't just sit around at a table thinking, okay, well, we have to go through this process and we have to take a vote and this is going to take a year, year and a half. Um, we are able to jump in and say, all right, here's an issue. It's immediately impacting the health and well-being of our kids and families. How do we change it now? And sure, some things can take a little bit longer than others, but like, you know, small steps like, you know, adding our pronouns into our email signatures. That was a quick change. That was a quick thing that we were able to do, a quick adjustment. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about the real changes, big and small, that we have done within our organization on a lot of different levels. Yeah, absolutely. And I I have loved being a part of this journey and also just all of the things I've learned from um, you, of course, Daniel, and um, just everybody from throughout the agency that I've got an opportunity to work with. Um, but I think it's imperative um, for an effective DEI strategy to have those uh, levels of accountability built in. And it's really important that leadership is accountable to the workforce. And so that means when things are brought to leadership's attention or when things are just observed or felt throughout the agency, that not only do we quickly respond to those things, but we follow up and we're having those open lines of communication and we're being transparent about why we are shifting our practices, how we're going to be shifting them, and uh, really giving um, our staff an opportunity to, to be a part of that co-creating of solutions. I think the LGBTQ ad hoc is, a, is one of the really great ways that we do that. And um, I think that here we are creating a lot of models of how to move forward in this space and what this work could look like, um, because there's a lot of ways that we have really embedded this into our systems that I haven't seen other places. And it's pretty amazing. It's not always heavy. Like when we're talking about DEI, it doesn't always have to be heavy. And um, there's a lot of celebration that happens within our organization as well. So you mentioned affinity groups earlier. And um, I know that we, so I'm a member of the LGBT affinity group and we get together and sometimes it's just us jawing. Sometimes, yeah, we're processing some heavy stuff, but sometimes we're just getting to spend some time with our colleagues um, who are also members of the community and hang out. And like, we made a playlist, we made a Spotify playlist. I think it was called um, In Infinite Affinity because it's our affinity group playlist and we add to it. And um, we're organizing our agency's pride celebration and it's going to be, you know, we want it to be something that's really big, really beautiful, um, focused in on the trans community in particular this year. So um, not necessarily going to have a lot of rainbows, but definitely going to have a lot of, of colors representative of the trans pride flag. Um, and then I know that the other affinity groups, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least one of them, I believe, is the, is it the potluck? 
the cookout oh my gosh how did you get that wrong i'm playing i'm sorry yes our black african-american affinity group the one that i belong to um is the cookout and i i would think it's fair to say that i spend about a good half of that meeting laughing um, and laughter is like good for the soul. And it's such an amazing space to be able to connect with people from throughout the agency who are in different roles, right? And we come together all because we have um, this connection to the Black experience. And we talk about like all of the ways that shapes who we are. And it's been so fun. We are group leader, um, Tamika from our JJS um, program has been just like an, a phenomenal leader of that space. She brings like topics that we talk about and we explore just all of the uh, ways that um, our upbringing and our experiences as Black people have really shaped how we navigate both our professional and our personal lives. Uh, and it's just been just so good to like build that community within the agency. And we don't always like talk all the time. We only we meet when we meet, right? But it just feels good to have that space. And I really encourage everyone within the agency to check out the affinity groups. Um, now when we have like new hire orientations, I'm always sharing and resharing and sharing like, hey, you should really think about joining. I think it's one of those ways that, uh, one of the small ways that has a big impact on uh making our work life <laughs> feel just feel a little bit lighter, right? Maybe because you're also able in that same vein to be able to come and share a space with people who have this shared identity and some shared experiences with you, not all the time, right? But some shared experiences and you can just like connect and, and be your whole self in that space. And then, you know, we're, we're going to Sacramento Pride this weekend as of time of recording, understanding that, you know, we record things and then they later get released. But yeah, we're going to have a presence at Sacramento Pride and join the celebrations there. Um, yeah, I'm excited. This will be my first year attending Sacramento Pride. I have only been here since 2020. So I moved here during the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I'm like really excited to be a part of all of the festivities. Um, I was on a call the other night and um, I'm excited. They do a lot of amazing work and they're putting together um, a huge event. So it's going to be pretty cool. Do we do anything for Juneteenth within the organization? Well, besides um, acknowledging and recognizing it this year as an official paid holiday, um, we don't have anything planned as of now, but again, I think that that is a, something obviously that's going to change. I think that, again, right, this is not a linear process, so we are figuring out as we go and we are adjusting. I think we'll definitely do some type of acknowledgement just of the day and of the celebration. Uh, we did do highlight it in our agency newsletter um, just to let staff know, again, that it's a, a paid agency holiday and give a little background of Juneteenth and why we're celebrating. And then, of course, like do an encouragement to use that as an opportunity to learn more about uh, the experiences of, of our Black and African-American staff and community. And, you know, if there's an opportunity to volunteer or support in that way, um, of course, just encouraging people to do that. But yeah, I'm just excited that we'll have that day. I plan on using my Juneteenth this year. I want to say the rest, but I'm actually going to make sure I take my kids out to a festival because I grew up celebrating Juneteenth. And it's important to me that they, you know, also get to do that and have those experiences. 
And I only recently, like within the past couple of years, learned about Juneteenth as a celebration. Like people were talking about it and it's going, wait, what is this thing that I had never heard of? And I mean, I'm in my mid thirties. Yeah, it's not taught in schools, right? So who would have thought that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free all of the slaves? Because I don't know if that's the way that the information was given to us. But I had the privilege of having a mom who was really involved in our community, especially our Black community. So I got to grow up uh, with a good sense of just my own Blackness and the Black experience, which I think has served me well throughout my life. That was, it was kind of, that's how it was explained to me as well as, you know, they were saying, someone explained it to me as being like the Black Independence Day, because on, on July 4th, it's not like everyone had independence. And so that's why Juneteenth is important. And I bet folks didn't know when you tune into Resource Families Thrive, occasionally you'll also get history lessons. We are a full service agency. Yeah. We'll give you the historical context of many of the things that we do for our work, too. Yeah, that's important, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can't know where we're going if we don't know where we've been. Yeah. Sankofa. Exactly. This episode has definitely been really information-packed, and I know that there is a ton more information out there um, when people are learning more about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, when people ask you for resources so that they can learn more on their time, um, what sort of things do you typically recommend? Um, I say it is there is there is not one place to go, right? You should go to all the places really intentionally. I think it's also really important to kind of put yourself into spaces where you will be immersed in and and have authentic really organic ways about learning other cultures and identities so having a degree a diverse group of people around you i think is a is a one really good way to start and if that's something you have not already done um then you know be, be intentional about finding opportunities to engage with people from identities who are um other than your own um, also, there's like a ton of good books and things that are resources. A really good one that's also really popular is uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibrahim Kendi. Uh, also, White Fragility is a really good book uh, to check out if you're learning or wanting to learn more about uh, white supremacy and white fragility and what that looks like and, and how do we do that intentional reflection of, to move past that in, in a really intentional way. Um, I would also say there's a lot of podcasts that I love to listen to. Of course, I try to immerse myself in the DEI space um, just so that I'm aware of what's going on in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion and, and how other organizations and agencies across sectors are implementing this work and what's been effective and, and how uh, people who are operating um, in this same space that I sit in are uh, being transformational and, and able to shift and uh, really, uh, you know, be change agents. Um, one of the ones I really like is a podcast called Diversity. Um, it has a bunch of good information. They interview uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion professionals um, from different sectors. Uh, another good one just to delve into conversations about like identity and uh, specifically like in a U.S. context and a cultural context and and the impl those implications is uh, 
Code Switch. It's an NPR podcast. Uh, they have some really good uh, episodes on there and uh, the list goes on. But I would say that look at all of the sources, the books, the podcast, the person sitting next to you. Um, we should be forever students. Um, I myself consider myself a, a forever student. If I called myself an expert in diversity, equity, and inclusion, I don't think that I would be being a good steward of the field um, because I think to be engaging in this work is to understand that we will never um, understand the totality of knowledge that exists around uh, one culture, one identity, one experience, right? Um, it's our jobs to continue to learn and to understand and, and operate from a place that we are able to shift and adapt um, how we operate and are the lens in which we view the world and we view those around us um, to create uh, better communities. And that's also how we sustain the work. You've you've definitely uh, provided me with some new resources that I haven't necessarily had a chance to check out. Um and including especially the podcasts, you know, like Diverse Seek and, and Code Switch. Um, I, I definitely need to get in on those and devour some information. But yeah, I think it's it's one of those things that's it's the same thing I tell people about child development, like go on Google and look up child development and you will have millions of results. I kind of imagine when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, the resources are there. We just have to take the time to look for them. Absolutely. And if there's one more book I might add, I know we touched on redlining a little bit and you gave a, a great explanation about the process and how it happened. Um, there's a book called uh, The Color of Law, and it mm -hmm. talks about the history of redlining, but it also gives a really good description of the history of racial inequity um, in this country. And it, it talks about redlining um, in a way that paints a really like clear picture of of a lot of the racial inequity and disparities that exist and how redlining as a practice contributed to and exacerbated a lot of the inequity that was already happening um you know post slavery and jim crow redlining is another of those terms that i only relatively recently learned i can tell you now that it was 2018 that I learned what redlining even was because I was never taught. Um, I so. learned in, as in 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 as a professional. I didn't learn this in school. I don't even think I learned about it in undergrad. This happened in yeah in my profession, working with a nonprofit community with agencies who were talking about it. I feel like I learned most of everything from like being right, like being in the fields, being boots to the ground. And it's like you said, we we have to be forever students and have to be open to learning about these things. So um, I hope that people have have captured a lot from this discussion and are inspired to learn more, are inspired to seek out more about that, um, the, the different histories, the different reasons why things look the way they do. I think that that's, the, that's a really important thing to do. And using myself as an example, you know, as a as a human who, when he took a DNA test, came back with reflectively white Caucasian genetics, um, you know, I, I will use myself as an example of if I can unlearn some of the things that I had learned, anyone can. Um, that's a reality here. Um, 
and and I'm excited to continue that learning. I think it's it's a valuable thing. It can be a very beautiful journey. Mm-hmm. It is what you make it. Yeah, I think having guests like you on the podcast and I've had other people talking about diversity and the intersectionality within the system. Um, you know, one thing I will say, I think that they're, they have been really critical parts of my, my cultural competency journey. Absolutely. And I think the work that you're doing is, is really amazing and impactful. Um, and I would like to offer a, a reframe. I think uh, cultural competency um, while it's great and important, I think that it's really important that we, in a really intentional way, shift that um, to a lens of cultural humility. I think cultural competency assumes that we can amass the totality of knowledge about a culture or a specific identity, um, while cultural humility really um, entails that it is a, a journey and a process and that we will never know everything that there is to know about an identity um, or a culture or someone's existence, but we will um, be, like we said, forever students, and uh, we will be really intentional about uh, how we continue to understand and accept cultural differences. Thank you for that. I, I like that phrase. Cultural humility in place of cultural competency. That's a good one. Aaron, this has been delightful. Um, it has been so cool to get to have this conversation with you, to get to share this with everybody. Um, and and I'm looking forward to further conversations, further discussions. Yeah, me too. Thank you for inviting me into your space and allowing me to share um, a little bit about uh, my uh, introduction into this work and in this space and about, of course, like work that is a passion project for me that um, I genuinely enjoy doing. And of course, it has been a pleasure getting to know you. I've learned a lot from you as well. So thank you for um, showing up that way and and all of the great things that you do and will continue to do. You know, I hope that everyone who's listening today does take the chance to look into some of the resources that Aaron has provided and um, does continue to be a forever student, does continue on their own journey of cultural humility. I think that that connection to everything that we do, the way it touches our communities as a whole is going to be really important. Um, don't forget everyone to like, comment, and share on the podcast posts uh, anytime you see these things on social media because it does continue to get this, this information out, all of the work that we are doing beyond the foster care realm too. Um, and if you are interested in becoming a resource family, especially for those kids out of marginalized populations because they do need help, they do need support, now more than ever we are seeing this need um, I do hope that you'll reach out to us. You can contact us through our website, ssyaf.org. And you can also call us directly at 916-344-0199. Until we talk to you again, keep thriving.